the show where I interview leaders who have brought design thinking to their town and HR practices. In today's episode, we have a special guest on the show. I'm joined by Christopher Lind, who is the head of global digital learning at GE Healthcare. Welcome, Chris. Hey, Nicole. Thanks for, thanks for having me. It's fun being on the other side of the interview side. I know. I was just a guest on Christopher's show the other day. He has a, right. what's, what's your show called again? Learning Tech Talks. Learning Tech Talks. So check that out as well. And so Chris, what's your story? What's my story? You know what's funny is that question is one of the is the one of the most disruptive questions I think anybody can ever ask me. We I'm like disruptive. I know that's right, and it's it's one of those things you'd think you'd be better prepared for it. But I mean, so in terms of my story, I guess here's a little bit on both the personal and professional side because I I think it's important to integrate the two. So. On the professional side, I've always been a, what I call people development geek, um, have always been fascinated by the way we develop people going back to my early days as a teacher, but also with a really unique bend on how technology is changing it. So, you know, I've always been fascinated by technology's ability to change all the possibilities. So that kind of tech bend plays in a lot of different ways with the work I do, kind of the perception I have, the way I, I operate my teams, things like that. Um, so that's a little bit about the professional side. On the personal side, I'm very much a husband and a dad. Um, I have five kids, nine, six, three, four, and one. Um, so very busy. I have an amazing wife who, who makes that all possible. So yeah, that's, and so in terms of like hobbies, anything like that, I don't have time for hobbies. I don't, I don't have, I can't go anywhere, anything like that. So I am, uh, I'm homebound. I, I discovered with COVID that our life is called quarantine, but I'm okay with that. Thanks, Chris. And we are also former colleagues. So it's always great yes. to catch up with, with Chris. Um, so Chris, What's yes. your creative superpower? I know you prepared something for us. Yeah, you made me draw a post-it note, which is, you're actually very fortunate because I always have my post-it notes like right here mm -hmm. on my desk. So I'm not much of an artist, right? Okay. okay. But in terms of my creative superpower, and I think this was also kind of uh, something that I figured out I was very good at with tech was taking very complicated kind of fragmented things and pulling it together and making sense out of it and then helping others understand how to do that. So, mm -hmm. you know, that that really was where learning tech talk started. People were struggling to understand what is this tech? I'm hearing all these buzzwords. To me, it made sense and so I've been able to kind of pull that together and say, "Hey, this this is how to understand it. This is how to think about it." So, mm -hmm. that, that's my short answer. Cool. What was that on that drawing? We couldn't quite I, it's, see that. Okay, you, you probably can't see it. It's just right it's just a bunch of random ah, fragments in the air with yeah. a little stick figure yeah. putting them together and, yeah. and organizing them. Yeah, so. love it. I mean, that's certainly a you know a superpower that comes in so handy, and especially now in these days of everything is virtual, anyways, right? So I assume there's even more tools that are out there that people are trying to struggle to make sense of. So. What a yeah, great superpower. Well, yes, yes. <laughs> I, it, it's definitely come in handy on many occasions. <laughs> so uh, let's dive into, you know, the topic that we, we usually cover in Talent Tales, which is design thinking. So tell us a little bit more about how you discovered it and how you've applied it at GE. 
So a couple things, um, you know, in terms of how I discovered it, what was, what's actually interesting about it is I discovered it probably several years ago as kind of the formal, right? Like, Oh, what was interesting about it though, is when I discovered it, I was like, wait a minute, that's how I operate. <laughs> so it actually gave a name to something that was uh, the way that I had kind of been operating things for a very long time. And I, I think the way it started was I was in the software world early in my career. So kind mm -hmm. of agile, right? Mm -hmm. Ideating prototyping, like that was very normal to me. But the thing that I always didn't like about it was it wasn't human centric. When you looked at, mm -hmm. when I worked with the developer teams, all they cared about was like software releases, you know, requirement gathering, requirement targets, things like that. And I said, we were thinking about this wrong. We need to think about the end user at it. So I think that kind of mm -hmm. combination of learning focus and kind of talent focus, then working in the software world, it was just the way I operated. So it was funny several years ago when I found it and I went, oh, okay. It has a name, apparently. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. And what were the aspects, just to dig into that a little bit more, what were the aspects that you were already doing? So I think on the front end, right, I've always, with anything that we've done, really focused on the empathy side of things, mm -hmm. right? What, are, what is the end user actually experiencing? What are they dealing with? Where are they right now? Let's actually put ourselves in their shoes instead of trying to go, well, this is what we think they're doing. Um, I think the other big part of it, you know, was, uh, and I don't think our industry always does the best job of this was like, right, actually defining like, what are we trying to do? Instead of just jumping into action and saying, let's just, let's just go. Mm -hmm. So let, so it was always about moving slow to move fast. And I think mm -hmm. the other thing that was part of it, again, came from the software world was this idea of right? Coming up with these ideas, doing really rapid prototypes, testing them mm -hmm. out, and then just iterating instead of getting mm -hmm. stuck in this, let's spend 12 months building something, then let's test it. And then right. we discover, well, it, it didn't really work. And then we're back to the drawing board. Mm -hmm. Great. Yeah. And so can you give us an example of how you've applied it at GE at, specifically to learning? I assume sure. that's sort of your jam. Yeah. So I'll, I'll, I'll give you, I'll go one better, right? It's going to be a complete tech topic and learning and, uh, you know, design thinking. So we're just, we're just bundling this into the mm -hmm. cornucopia of all mm -hmm. things we're talking about. Um, so one of the big focus areas that I've, that I've been working on recently was some of these new immersive technologies. And this was long before COVID. So what, what are the, different capabilities of things like augmented reality or virtual reality or artificial intelligence? How can we actually apply that? Um, not to necessarily dehumanize the organization, but to actually humanize it and actually help people be better at their jobs and feel more fulfilled, things like that. So anyway, I, we had this, I worked with the sales team to figure out what is something that you're really dealing, like what are some of the problems that you're really dealing with? And there's no shortage of them, mm -hmm. as you can imagine in mm -hmm. an organization our size. But one of the big ones was our products were massive and it made it very difficult for people to talk to a product and actually have people see it and touch it and feel it. Add to that the complexity of our products is far more than anybody could ever kind of retain in their head. And so mm -hmm. we said, all right, well, well, what can we do with that? And so as we, as we moved on to this concept of what if we could use augmented reality to streamline this, 
um, we went down that path, right? In a very, we had a desired outcome. We knew what we wanted to do. We asked ourselves actually before we even figured out, are we going to use AR, VR, you know, AI, things like that. I have kind of a phrase that I use here, which is let's stop asking what would we do better that we're doing mm -hmm. today and instead ask, what would we do if we could do anything? So mm -hmm. we did just kind of this, this is kind of more of a grotesque term, but it's the one I mm -hmm. use, right? Brain vomit, where it was just mm -hmm. like, let's just take our idea, like just throw them out there. Like, what would we do if we could do it well? We could, what if we could have 3D printers drop off this stuff at people's side? And we're like, well, you know, what? Well, let's, let's mm -hmm. like go through it. And so as we did it, we actually landed back on, um, we actually landed back on, okay, augmented reality was going to be the right way to approach this because it allowed us to create rapid prototypes of our products. It allowed us to streamline the stuff. And then we hit a complete wall, um, which was mm -hmm. the tech vendors that we were currently partnered with at the company. It was just, it was way too bloated. It was way too bloated. Mm -hmm. um, the tech specs, the architecture specs were too complicated. It was going to cost way too much time and money for us to move fast. So we actually almost abandoned the whole thing. We prototyped this thing mm -hmm. and it, it just tanked. And we tested it and it failed. But we proved that people did find value in this concept. And so we said, all right, well, what do we learn from it? Let's, let's go back. Like, let's mm -hmm. go back and, and think about what we could do. So we did. And then we ideated again. And we said, okay, well, let's, let's rethink this. We redid the models. We found a different way to do it. We actually reconstructed things. And we had a win, right? Mm -hmm. we, we found, we solved the problem. And then we ran into another wall, right? We tested it and I won't get into the details, mm -hmm. but we got into some political landmines where things ended up just kind of blowing up and we had mm -hmm. to reset, um, which actually then led us down a path to use natural language processing to actually help people get the feedback they needed that we learned from mm -hmm. the prototypes um, of the AR. And actually now, we're resurrecting what we did with AR because of some of the things that have changed. So we're, we're kind of almost always in this phase of how do we actually roll through some of these things to solve problems. It's, it's mm -hmm. been pretty interesting. And I love that, that, you know, cause you're describing exactly what we should do in design thinking, which is the prototyping the failing fast and then iterating. And it sounds the way you describe it, that seems okay. Cause in many organizations who come more from the business side failing, is really not a concept that everybody is comfortable with, right? And the nature of that failing really means learning and iterating. So uh, tell us a little bit more how, how you, what's the culture always like that? Or no. what part did you play? <laughs> right, so how yeah. did you, because that's the question usually comes. How do I create a culture environment where that is okay? So there were two. So what I can tell you is that was not the culture at all. The mm -hmm. culture was not necessarily warm to the idea of, hey, let's just fail. Uh, so it wasn't an easy shift, I will say that. But it all started with kind of storytelling, right? This is how mm -hmm. I started with it, was mm -hmm. telling these stories of where we wanted to go. So going back to this, what would we do if we could do anything? We really crafted a compelling story about what that was and how we were gonna get there to get at least people's excitement going. Um, the other thing that I did that was actually more of an intentional move to help my team's cultures or my team's culture and then also the organizational culture was I was intentional with my budget and I actually created what was called the incubator. Um, and the incubator, the, the tagline for the incubator was, 
We don't accept failure. We expect it. And that was, that was the mantra. It's like mm -hmm. anything we do as an incubator project, it's, it. we expect failure. We know we're mm -hmm. going to fail. So all the eggs won't hatch and that's the way we're going to do it. Mm -hmm. And so when we socialize this to the leadership, and there was some hesitation. It's not like people went, Oh, we love it. Throw money down the tubes. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it really became a way for us to start normalizing it. And then as we failed, it just became part of the culture. And, and I think what helped people with it was because we gave it a name and we gave it a box, it allowed people to start to transition and still feel comfortable holding on to where they weren't comfortable failing yet while still having a place that they could comfortably fail. Now, mm -hmm. I would say more of our projects are now incubator projects than anything mm -hmm. else, but that was the journey we went on. We said, let's, let's name it over here. Let's give everybody a comfortable place to do it. And then we'll let that bleed into everything we do. Mm -hmm. Awesome. I love that. Uh, just a quick reminder, everybody put your questions in the chat. We'll get to them in a little bit. So um, once I'm done asking Chris all my once questions, <laughs> which might take forever, but no, we want to, we want to hear from you as well. Um, but yeah, so uh, this is awesome. And this really speaks to that you, you know, as a leader and as a culture, you have to really set that tone and make it explicit that it's okay. Right. Um, especially in corporate environments. So yeah. we really love what you did there. I think that's super creative. So let's talk about impact. Mm -hmm. What's the impact you have noticed after, you know, using some human-centered or design thinking techniques in your work? You know, I think some of the things that, I mean, there's, there's a couple things. One, I, want, I, I could talk about the attitude of the team and the culture that we've created, right? The subculture behind it, which... I feel like people are much more, and again, this is more of a squishy feeling that I have and, and just from the conversations I have with my team, but people do seem much more engaged in the work that we do because they do feel comfortable raising their hand with crazy ideas, right? When we do our, what would we do if anything, we could do anything sessions, they know that I'm not going to shoot it down or that we're, that we're literally just brainstorming things, which actually it's been amazing to see the untapped creativity mm -hmm. just come to life because people mm -hmm. actually bring out things that they maybe would have never said before. Um, we've, some of our best ideas have come out of something that at first glance you would have looked at and said, that's, that's never going to work. We're never going to mm -hmm. be able to do that. And then we figured it out because we removed the barriers of, you know, well, what, what are the limitations around us? So I think, you know, the engagement of the team has been, has been huge it's been interesting to watch culturally how infectious it has been through an organization, right? So I, I look at the teams around us. I think a lot of times people are waiting for everyone else to change so that they can change. And our attitude coming in was, no, we're, we're going to be the change we want to see in the organization. And, you know, I'm still here. So I guess I've, we've, haven't completely blown too many things up. Um, but it's been interesting to watch how many people have actually tapped into, you know, hey, wow, right? This is, what are you guys doing? What's, what's different over there? How are, how are you operating? And I think the other big one though, I actually had a call today about it. Um, it was actually pretty cool. We, we had a call with our end users, right? We just rolled out this big global program. Um, and we, we, we sat down and had a conversation with our end users. And said, what did you think, right? We designed this for you. It was part mm -hmm. of our message. It wasn't designed for us. Right. And they said, this is the first time, and these were some pretty seasoned people, that they've ever actually experienced something 
that help them do their job better mm -hmm. than they had before, which to me was really cool. Cause like, what are we doing here? What do we, if we're not here to help them be better, we have no purpose. And so mm -hmm. I think it was great to hear from the very people we designed it for that we'd hit the target. Yeah. Cause that is really the ultimate measure. I would think if you're in the learning function, right? Right. Right. Um, great. If, right, right. Great. If my teams like it, right. if, if my business right. stakeholders think it's great, but if at the end of the day, right. the end users like, thanks. <laughs> that was fun. <laughs> yeah, that was nice. Thanks. We missed the target. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Love it. Um, what's your favorite design thinking or hack design thinking resource or hack? Oh man. <laughs> what about the brain vomit that you talked about? Well, you know, so, so here's the thing. So here's the hack with it. Okay. Oh, cause, cause when it comes to the, <laughs> I'm never going to live that one down. Um, right. With these, and I'll, I'll, I'll pretty up the term, right. Our, what would we do if we could do anything sessions, mm -hmm. right? The hack to that has been, we have one person who we assign to basically ensure nobody's ideas get shot down. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, literally that is their job is to just eliminate that from the conversation because it is amazing even for myself having done this so many times how quickly that creeps in it just creeps mm -hmm. in so quick where you're like well that's not going to work because and there's a person that's like mm, nope nope what were you going to say and we actually it forces us to to stop doing what we always do which is come up with all the reasons why what we're thinking about won't work and that it was a simple shift um, and i used to just always play that role and then, then I started kind of letting other people play the roles because I realized I kind of do it too sometimes. And so it was really interesting based on who was least passionate about the topic is the best person to do it because they don't care. They, they're Love happy it. to shoot down the ideas. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> That's a great, great idea. Um, and then uh, last question before we go, um, well, second to last question before we go into the Q&A. Sure. Um, what tips do you have for those who want to get started with human-centered design? Oh, I think that, that one of the things is spend time with the people that you actually are, are trying to serve, right? And, and I think the one limitation to that where sometimes people get so hung up on it is they spend a bunch of time, you know, thinking like, well, when am I going to get there? How am I going to do that? It, versus just doing it right? Set up a Zoom meeting with some people and just chat with them on a human level and talk about what are you dealing with? What, this is what we're trying to do. Tell me what you think. It's much easier than I think sometimes um, people make it out to be. And sometimes the biggest step is just taking the first one. And I think mm -hmm. that's probably the biggest thing is just, just do it. You're going to fail. Mm -hmm. That's okay. Just keep going. Mm -hmm. And it starts with a conversation. I love that. It starts you with know. a conversation. Just talk to people. It's, you don't need any kind of fancy. I know you're the tech guy, but you don't really need any fancy tools to get started with design thinking. No, no. You don't. In fact, yeah. sometimes the tools are more of a distraction. Yeah. Like I'm the tech guy. And even mm -hmm. I, nine times out of 10, am the one cutting tech out because I'm saying we're actually just adding noise to the mm -hmm. mix versus let's just figure out what's the minimum we need to actually do what we're trying to do. Mm-hmm. Great. So I usually close out my part of the questioning with a quote and let you react to it. Are you ready? Let's do it. Okay. Quote, I'm always doing that which I cannot do in order that I may learn how to do it. Unquote. Pablo Picasso. So I actually really like that quote because it, I, to me, 
and maybe I have just a weird affinity with it, but I actually love failure and not, not like I really enjoy it. Right. I, I don't, I don't have fun with it. It's not fun to fail. I won't pretend that, but having seen the power that failure can have when you use it to its full potential, I think it's such a impactful quote. Cause like, that's how you learn, right? That is, that's actually one of the biggest things that's part of our whole strategy here is we should be pushing everybody to a healthy level of a failure with everything we do. Cause if we're not, they're not growing. And that's mm-hmm. the only way you get people to grow. So good, good quote. Thought you might like it. <laughs> There's some thought behind some of the things I do. I don't know. <laughs> no, no, no. Okay. So we got a couple of questions and if you have, more, please plug them in the chat. We'll go sort of one by one. So Grace is asking, uh, would you be able to give an example of a story that you told to stakeholders to get them on board with failing? Yeah. Oh, <laughs> specific to the failing one. Um, let me think about this. Cause there was one with the incubator one that, that really went over. Um, and actually there was one stakeholder who was, was a stark advocate about it. Um, so with the AR thing, right, where this, where this started to go south was we were treading into customer territory, right? And so the idea of failing in front of a customer um, was, was just unheard of. It, it, was, it was going to be unacceptable. So I said, well, then let's ask a customer, which flew in the face of what people thought. So I actually went to some of our customers and said, what would you think if this happened? And I explained the situation and... Um, and so then they told me, and honestly, their answer was perfectly fine. They're like, we're actually okay with that as long as we understand what's going on. And so that to me was a huge influence coming back because, you know, there was this huge resistance to the possibility of failing in front of a customer. And when I actually came back mm-hmm. and I said, actually, our customers are more okay with it than we may think. The initial response was, that's not true until I actually said, well, no. And then I told the story of who I talked to. And I explained what it was and they actually shared how the failure would actually make them feel more comfortable and feel more confident in us as, as a supplier. So that, that was one example of one that, mm-hmm. that went well. I won't say they all gone well. Mm-hmm. No, of course. I mean, you experimented with those stories as well, probably, you know? Well, the thing with it is so often, right, our perceptions or what people say, like, well, this is how it is. A lot of times we just like go with it. Right. I mean, I was the head of regulatory and pharma for a while before I came to G and there were so many things where it's like, well, we can't do that. The FDA won't let mm-hmm. us do that. And I was like, did anybody ask them? <laughs> like, did we ever go talk to the FDA to, to do that? Well, no. Well, then let's do it. And then you tell that story and suddenly it, it inspires people to change their thinking. Yeah. Or in HR, my experience is it's often people say, oh, the employment lawyers wouldn't allow us to right. do that. And I'm like, well, have we asked them or have we brought them <laughs> in the program design early on? Because, and, and my experience, and that's what I have done. And my experience is when you work with them, like from the beginning and share what you want to get to, there are things that are possible. Right. right. A lot of more things than, you know, just saying our, our employment lawyers won't let us Well, and here. a lot of times <laughs> they'll help you figure out yeah. how to navigate around it, right? I had, right. I actually had one recently where it was, you can never launch this technology in Europe because of GDPR mm-hmm. and the works councils. Mm-hmm. Like, you're telling me I can't do this because of the- Challenge. Just, okay, challenge accepted. <laughs> like challenge accepted, let's do Well, guess what? We did it. 
-hmm. and the works councils were completely leaning in on it. We got mm -hmm. around GDPR in terms of how we were able to manage it because our IT team saw the value and said, let us help you figure out how to navigate this. So once we kind of didn't accept that we can't, we, we actually were able to do it and it's actually been one of our most successful projects. Yeah, so lesson learned, always ask, don't assume. Yes, what um, saying about that? Oh, that's right, that's right. <laughs> We already had brain vomit, so maybe That's we right. can't. We don't need to add any more. We don't need to add any more to the mix. <laughs> one, one per session. Yeah. Um, Uli is asking, and I, and I don't know if that's in your purview, but maybe you have an opinion on that. So she is asking, how are you utilizing this change of culture to positively affect talent attraction and retention? So what's funny about it is um, I'm not in the HR organization, but I will say it's still within my purview. And the reason mm -hmm. for it is... Um, regardless of where I've been, I've always tried to stay connected with HR because to me, when you look at talent, that's it, right? You have to look at talent holistically. You can't mm -hmm. look at it in the silo of learning or comp and ban or, you mm -hmm. know, talent acquisition, regardless of where you sit in the organization. So mm -hmm. I think one of the ways that we're doing this that I've actually gotten a lot of feedback on is one, I'm very outspoken and public about the work that we're doing, right? Mm -hmm. And I actually did not realize the impact that it would have on employer brand and things like that until uh, I was actually talking with some of folks on our talent acquisition team. And they said, we've actually had candidates say part of what drew them here was they heard this presentation or they saw this going on over here and mm -hmm. they want to be part of a company that operates that way. So it's mm -hmm. actually been really interesting to you know, be able to kind of tell these stories and share this stuff out there and to actually be able to correlate it to, oh, that's actually having a pretty big impact on talent brand. I think sometimes mm -hmm. we're so insulated, right? We keep everything close to the vest. We don't wanna tell the world what we're doing because we're afraid. We're afraid of what will people think or what if we didn't do it perfect? And I think sometimes that transparency and vulnerability um, makes a big difference. So you shared, is it because so you sh you're very vocal on social media? Is that is that where candidates find out? Social media, um, you know, conferences, talking, you know, doing different things. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, again, anything like that where we can do it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Great. Well, that's all the questions we got for today, and we are also out of time. So, thank you so much, Chris. I know we could talk longer and more we'll do that we another time we said we were going to run out of time so yeah yeah we could do that another time so thank you so much and thanks everybody for joining us today and i hope to see you at a future town tales bye